Chapter Thirteen, Part Two of The Life of Clara Barton, Volume Two by William Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen, Part Two Clara Barton at Home and Abroad. Her domestic affairs attended to, she hurried to Boston to deliver an important address and attend a reception. From there she went to Wellesley and delivered an address. My cold entirely left me, and I have had no trouble with it. So much for right living and good cool blood. This is the last day of the convention. I am to speak to-night. I did say a little yesterday, and they all laughed at me. I wish you could have been here. There is to be a reception given me next Friday evening. Steve and Lizzie and Myrtle are invited. I go to the Wellesley College to take tea and speak to the five hundred girls there on Saturday evening. Some things I must miss. I get back as soon as I can so as to go on home. I'm so glad of Sunday. It was a glorious day so good to see so many together again i hope the children are well and that you don't wrestle too much with imaginary dirt and are getting a little real strength besides her tours abroad she had some interesting journeys in her own country including a happy camping trip in the yellowstone park and the cascade mountains in the autumn of eighteen ninety one the following winter she spent in the Red Cross headquarters and what had been the home of General Grant in Washington. It was a strenuous winter and an expensive one. She drew upon her personal resources for fuel for the large building, as well as for rent and the care of the home. She wrote to Mrs. Bullock, 17th East F Street, Washington, January 8th, 1892. I have wanted to talk with you about coming to see us, but when I think how cold it is here, and how far from nice and cozy it is, I feel reluctant to invite you from a small, snug, pretty home to this so large, and as it seems to me, less inviting one. If you did not know it, I should not dare to say you might try it for we are having an exceptionally cold, hard winter. The ground is covered with snow, and the winds have blown an old northeaster these last days, and you will know that this is not an easy house to heat. My expenses have been so heavy and receipts so nothing that I cannot afford to take on more help. I am obliged to have a woman for the work and the house, a man for the fires and walk shoveling snow and all the cold rough work and an amunensis as my clerk and typewriter they are drawing steadily every month then my rent is high and no one to help share that and besides this all the world expects me to give it something if it can get through the door and get a letter to me I have had to economize on myself. 
In 1893, she was led into an experiment which caused her much anxiety and proved to have been a mistake. A man and his wife, who had been associated with her in her work along the Ohio River, expressed a desire to dedicate, as a thank-offering to humanity, a tract of land more than one square mile in area, or specifically 782 acres, as a home for the American Red Cross. This offer deeply touched Miss Barton, who accepted it in the following appreciative letter addressed to the donors. American National Red Cross, Washington, D.C., March 18, 1893. Dear Sir, Referring to your letter of February 10th, made public February 23rd, permit me to reply as follows. In accepting the gift of land in the state of Indiana that you so generously dedicate to the American National Red Cross as the Almoner of Humanity, and by which you have so touchingly complimented me personally, allow me to say that the friendship expressed on this and many other occasions by yourself and wife, and the personal aid you have both given of time and labor in great calamities, make me free to accept this gift without reservation, assuring you of my best endeavors to attain the humane results for which this benefaction is intended. This land, as the property of the American National Red Cross, will be the one piece of neutral ground on the Western Hemisphere protected by international treaty against the tread of hostile feet. It is a perpetual sanctuary against invading armies, and will be so respected and held sacred by the military powers of the world. Forty nations are pledged to hold all material and stores of the Red Cross and all its followers, neutral in war and free to go and come as their duties require. While its business headquarters will remain, as before, at the capital of the nation, this gift still forms a realization of the hope so long cherished that the national red cross may have a place to accumulate and produce material and stores for sudden emergencies and great calamities and if war should come upon our land which may god avert we may be ready to fulfill the mission that our adhesion to the geneva treaty has made binding upon us I will direct that monuments be erected defining the boundaries of this domain, dedicated to eternal peace and humanity, upon which shall be inscribed the insignia of the Treaty of Geneva, which insignia all the nations of the earth are bound by solemn covenant to respect. Not only our own people, but the peoples of all civilized nations will have published to their knowledge that the American National Red Cross has a home and a recognized abiding place through all generations. For this I have striven for years, mainly misunderstood, often misinterpreted, and it is through your clear intuition and humane thought 
that the clouds have been swept away and my hopes have been realized in accordance with views expressed by you in your letter of gift i appoint an adviser which i insist shall be yourself leaving you free to appoint another to work jointly with you knowing that in the future as in the past your heart will be in the work clara barton president american national red cross the gift as it developed was not without its conditions the donors could not quite afford to give it outright but would sell it for a sum very much less than its value in consideration of the philanthropic purposes to which it was to be dedicated this seemed not unreasonable and the deed was accepted subject to the specified conditions it seemed to clara barton a beautiful achievement there was to be one spot on the western hemisphere where in case of war the rights of humanity would be accepted as supreme located as it was in the interior of the country and removed by rail only a few hours from the great cities of chicago st louis cincinnati louisville indianapolis and toledo and surrounded by fertile farms it could become in an emergency a vast storehouse of supplies a great base hospital for the suffering unfortunately it did not prove to be all that she had anticipated the conditions specified and implied proved to be of such a character as to render the gift unsuitable for the purposes which she had hoped to accomplish the manager into whose hands she committed its care proved incompetent and in the end ungrateful the gift had to be relinquished and the money paid toward it was written down as a total loss in eighteen ninety six occurred miss barton's experience in constantinople where the red cross had its headquarters during her memorable work for the armenians there she visited scutari and gave an address on the scene of florence nightingale's great work she returned overland through vienna strasburg paris london and liverpool she left london october eighth eighteen ninety six on her return to washington she was given a great banquet attended by some of the most distinguished people in washington the following year eighteen ninety seven she was appointed by the president to attend the international red cross congress in vienna austria in eighteen ninety eight she did her notable work in connection with the spanish-american war and for the next two years was fully occupied with affairs at home in nineteen o two she went abroad again this time as a delegate to the conference held in st petersburg the last of the great conferences which she attended this journey has its record in two letters one to her niece mrs ida barton richius and the other to her nephew stephen e barton en route from st petersburg to the german frontier june eighteenth 
1902. The conference is ended, Russia has been visited, and we are well and well on the way toward home. It has been a most fortunate journey, no accidents, no illness. Attended a great and harmonious conference, royally met and cared for, with nothing to be regretted. We went first to Havre, France, to Paris for a few days, then to Berlin a few days, then on toward Russia. At the crossing on the frontier, we were met by a Red Cross escort and taken on for transportation to St. Petersburg about the 15th of May. Went into Hôtel de France, where we have remained till yesterday, nearly three weeks. The conference opened on the 16th with two sittings a day, and entertainments at evening unless it was necessary to take the day for some excursion or visit to some royal entertainment. The conference lasted about eight days. It was composed of delegates from nearly fifty nations. Subjects of a humanitarian character were discussed as connected with the work of the Red Cross. In Russia, everything is Red Cross all hospital work, all emergency work, nearly all relief work, care of children, orphans, foundlings. The women are educated to do this work. They enter the schools in the hospitals at 18 to 20, serve one year on probation, two as novices, then they may receive and wear the Red Cross and be nurses at a small sum in money per month board, clothes, care if sick, a good home as long as they live. When too old or no longer able to work, they have pensions given them and may remain in the hospital and be cared for always if they choose. Or if they have relatives and want to live with them, they can have their pensions and go to them and return always if they like. The hospital is always their home, if they want it, or they may marry if they choose, then they leave. They seemed so happy, looked so healthy. Many of them are orphan girls who had no home, nowhere else to be. They are not Catholic, but of the Protestant Church of Russia, though I see little difference between it and the Catholic. The churches are magnificent, such wealth of ornamentation. The bishops seem like Catholic priests. The people are very devout, but still very lively and kind. They seem to me to be the kindest people I ever saw. All the royal persons look kind. They have good faces. But the kindest face of all is that of the Tsar. He is young, handsome, looks like a mature college graduate. The Tsarina is also handsome. She was the granddaughter of Queen Victoria. They have four children, are very fond of them, and of each other. We went on an excursion to Moscow, saw the city Napoleon went to capture, and which he found trouble in getting out of. We went to the Kremlin where he stayed, the rooms he lived in the few days while the city was burning, 
and the ways by which he retreated. We visited the Grand Duke, who is the Governor-General of Moscow, and whose wife is sister of the Empress, another granddaughter of Victoria, the daughter of Alice of Hesse, who died many years ago of diphtheria while nursing three children through it. The Grand Duchess is said to be the handsomest woman in Russia. I think that may be true. And after I returned to Petersburg, she sent me her picture. Beautiful. Everybody was so kind to us all, but I felt they were especially kind to me. I never saw such treatment of guests. They wouldn't let you spend money. Carriages were at the disposal of all the delegates, all places of amusement free, guides provided, lunches, like dinners, provided each day at the conference, a hundred persons fed somewhere two to three times a day, and such feeding. Very many of the delegates were old friends of mine. I had met them in five other conferences that were so genial and attentive. As I am going to ask you to let Ada and Mamie read this, and Harold too, I must tell you about the horses, the finest I have ever seen. They have two choice kinds, the black Orlorf and the dapple gray, good size, carriage horses, and they go like the wind. The Orlorf was brought into St. Petersburg, perhaps into Russia as well, by Count Orlorf a good many years ago. The males are not changed, kept as stallions in full strength and spirit, and when past active or first-class service are kept for breeding purposes. They are not allowed to be sold out of Russia, it is said. They weigh from 1,000 to 1,400 pounds, are jet black, have glossy hair, high arching necks, step as proud as war horses, with full even tails, trimmed at the bottom to keep them from touching the ground. The Russian harness is not half the weight of ours, and much less of it. The shafts are kept away from the body, and all horses are round and fat. I have not seen a poor horse in Russia. The greys are much like the black, only dappled, as if painted, so dark, and distinct dapples, with also the heavy, beautiful tails. I asked to go through the royal stalls. The Tsar has eight hundred horses in his stud. A part are in Peterhof, ten miles away. The horses were in stalls about two-thirds as wide, big stalls as Baba's, say six to seven feet, with wooden floors, a narrow crack running the whole length to keep them dry, half a foot of clean dry straw in each, a little manger for grain, a little wire rack for hay, a good blanket on each, and you have the entire outfit of this beautiful stud of royal horses. They were gentle and didn't mind a strange hand on them, and the gentlemanly uniformed groom encouraged it and smiled at their quiet, good behavior. Some of the carriages are for two, some four, and some eight horses. 
the gilded and gemmed carriages are especially for coronation occasions some of them one hundred and fifty years old bright and beautiful as yesterday ordinarily the royal people ride in common carriages and drive a great deal to hospitals to all houses of charity schools orphanages and churches they are the patrons of all these and give great sums to them the empress has schools of hundreds of young women and young ladies in st petersburg studying from the lowest to the highest branches art and literature which she visits every week they are fitting themselves not alone for society but to go all over russia to teach the russians have all the societies we have prevention of cruelty to animals which they don't seem to need as much as we do i might accept temperance societies which they do not have and probably need about as much as we only the russian doesn't fight and quarrel when he gets drunk he goes to sleep have i told you that there is no real night in northern russia at this season of the year ask sadie to trace it on her atlas and she will find that st petersburg is in the same latitude of the southern ends of alaska and greenland consequently they have long days and short nights in summer and long nights and short days in winter it being summer now we have no real night the twilight lasted till eleven thirty sure and the sun rose at two thirty i went to bed by daylight either at one end or the other of the day i wrote without a lamp at eleven o'clock at night the people are in the streets all night but there is no disturbance no one is hurt or attacked the police are always on duty not in the saloons waiting to be called to some disturbance but in the middle of the street to see that there is no disturbance and there is none no people are killed in dark alleys here the would-be killer would be killed first unless he threw a bomb and then he would be killed after this is an unmercifully long letter I wish you would let it go to Ada and Mamie. If I had a typewriter, I would duplicate it and send to each, but I have none and write all by hand. I will take this on to Berlin to post, where we shall arrive at ten tomorrow morning for a few days' stay. With greatest love to all, your always loving Clara. This is my howdy, to all the loved ones from Europe. Hotel Scribe, Rue Scribe, Paris, July 26, 1902. My dear Steve, this is Saturday, and I sail tomorrow. I did not intend to write you in time for you to receive it, and perhaps feel that you must fly around to meet me in New York. I only wanted to tell you that, and when I would sail so you could calculate in what country I should most likely be. I go to Boulogne tomorrow, Sunday morning, July 27th, to catch the SS Pennsylvania as she steams on for New York. 
I expect to find Mr. Tillinghast on board, as he has arranged to finish his month's tour of southern Europe in time to take the Pennsylvania at Hamburg. Boulogne is her last point of land, and anyone knowing me would conclude I would stick to the land as long as possible. We had a glorious conference, and were gloriously received, no kindness or courtesy, and sometimes it seemed as if no luxury was omitted. There were no errors, and perfect harmony prevailed. We went on an excursion to Moscow for three days, returned to Petersburg, finished all up, did nothing carelessly nor in too great haste, wrote my report of the conference, some twenty pages, sent it to President Roosevelt, made out all my accounts with the government ready to present on my return, and when all was finished, left with Mr. Tillinghast, who took the place of secretary for Berlin. Remained a week when Mr. Tillinghast started on his journey of sightseeing. The other delegates had long gone, and I made for Karlsruhe for a stay of two weeks. My time was divided between the Grand Duchess and Princess Zeim-Zeim, who at present resides there. The Zeim-Zeim was one of the old high houses of Germany, and greatly venerated for patriotic and noble qualities. The husband of the princess, you will remember historically, perhaps. Prince Felix left Germany to fight in our war, raised a regiment, became its colonel till the close, then followed Maximilian to Mexico, stayed by him, with the princess, till he was shot, then returned to Germany to his estates at Gravelet. Not a bad record. I remained at Karlsruhe to the close of the court season, was present by invitation at the closing of the Parliament, heard the Grand Duke deliver his splendid address, spent the evening after socially and alone with the Grand Duke and Duchess till eleven o'clock. At two they started for the mountains, the princess two days later and between them I slipped off to Strasbourg, then to Geneva, then via Strasbourg again to Paris to wait for my steamer. The Pennsylvania is not a quick, but is a steady-going sailor, and will, D.V., get us over in about eight days, when I will quietly slip down home as if I had never been away. No mistakes have been made, no bad luck, not a day's illness of any one that I know of. Well enough managed, it seems to me, and fortunately ended, if it does end well, the rest of the way. I didn't intend to write so much. What you haven't time to read, you can put in your pocket. Love to all. End of chapter 13, part 2